Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply chain together. Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, welcome back to the Future of Supply Chain podcast. I'm Santosh Sankar, your host. And today, I join you from Saster out here in San Jose, California. The rain has dissipated. The sun is coming out. And joining us today is our friend Robin Deschamps, all the way from Berlin, Germany. And and Robin uh, is an investor at Point9. And uh, for those of you who uh, might not be familiar, Point9, I would say, is the preeminent SaaS investor uh, based in Europe. And Robin has spent a lot of time in and around software businesses, but also increasingly uh, around industrial manufacturing supply chain oriented business. Welcome, Robin. Hey, Santosh. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, glad to have you here. And, you know, I, I really want to kick it off and, you know, talk about what are you finding interesting? Where are you spending your time these days uh, out there in, in Berlin? What industries, what business models? Give it to us. Sure. Yeah. So actually, it's funny because when I started at Point Nine two and a half years ago, um, we simply saw more and more companies which were solving problems in the broader manufacturing supply chain. And, you know, by the time I created a list and was just like diving deeper. And by now, this list, I think, has more than like 300 companies yeah. in it. Not all of them are based in Europe, but I think the majority is. Yeah. And it's mostly still seed stage. Yeah. So you really can see there's like a big wave of uh, founders who try to tackle those sectors. Sectors, And I think like manufacturing general is one of the last bastions of like enterprise software. Yeah. Um, although it has its, uh, its challenges. Yeah. Yeah, um, and the uh, list you're referencing is the uh, factory uh, stack exactly, landscape, yeah. and and I reference it uh, fairly frequently. And we don't spend a lot of time manufacturing, right? Uh, we we spend a lot of time uh, around what happens after something leaves the manufacturing line, um, and we've identified there's this interesting gray area where the lines between manufacturing and supply chain are blurring, but there's a lot of parallels. And we were talking about some of them uh, earlier this morning. You, know, you have MES, you have WES. Yeah. Um, like that, there's a lot of uh, opportunities to take lessons learned across both. What are your thoughts? Like, What is interesting in the factory stack? What is not? Where are you spending time digging into software? Where are there opportunities on maybe the hardware side? Yeah. Uh, but we'd like to kind of unbundle that. Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe let's start where I don't spend so much time. I think there's mostly two areas. One is predictive maintenance, because I think it's a very crowded space, and you have very different different player coming from like um, different angles, so to say. Yeah. And I think for us, it's just hard at the seed stage to pick the right window there. And the second point is more like companies that try to build a dashboard for factories, or mm -hmm. you have I think like hundreds of different companies, and many of them are more like service rather than like a product company. Yeah. But that's something I'm not so interested in. And then to, to get back to your point, I think what's very interesting about both manufacturing and supply chain is that goods get moved all the time, right? It's within factories, it's across factories, it's from the factory to the warehouse, from the warehouse to the end customer, to the consumer. So, and there's a lot of like pitfalls and lots of inefficiencies. And basically you and I were trying to find, you know, solutions there that really fit those sectors. And I think 
One in particular I like a lot is asset is asset tracking. Yeah. Because I think many companies still really lack a visibility across their whole supply chain. Yeah. And doesn't matter if it's like in or outside the factory. Yep. Um, and then another part is what I really find interesting because people often talk about, you know, everything is going to be automated. Yeah. I don't think this will be the future anytime soon. So yeah. I'm looking a lot into like tools that basically help workers in the shop floor or also like in the in the warehouse to make things easier there, right? To yeah. to basically help them with their job to be more productive. Yeah. So I, I want to lean into um, the, the factory stack a little bit. And I actually have uh, one of the visuals you made in front of me. And uh, if we look at the version 1.0 of the factory stack, you have... Um, you know, software applications, data, sensors, um, and they're rather thin layers, if you yep. would. And as you see the kind of second evolution of this world, uh, you've actually uh, noted that the software applications and the data actually get thicker yep. in the stack and everything else starts to compress. Um, so are we talking about a world where uh, the worker actually is the individual who executes on it but it's really kind of the software and the data that run everything it's more a software driven mm. ecosystem not a hardware driven ecosystem uh, that's a very good question maybe maybe two points on that i think the first one is i i looked up a study from jp morgan or morgan stanley um, where they basically say that manufacturing is creating twice as much data as any other sector separately that's crazy. So it's crazy amount of data you have there, right? But the problem is this data sits in silos at the moment. The problem is even that you don't have the data like uh, on hand, for example, you don't really know how people are moving in the warehouse or like in the factory. That's right. So basically if you can, you know, create a solution that you can track those people or actually see how they move, you have way more data to make the process more efficient, yeah. which I think is super interesting. I think in the end, it's not that the software will tell only the humans what they have to do. Uh, I think more about like collaboration. I think it comes back to the trend of like cobots, so collaborative robots, right? Yeah. That help people to do something. Yeah. But not only you have an algorithm that basically teaches you like an Uber, yeah, where you go from A to B to C to D. I think a factory or like also warehouse are too complex and there's too many if this then that yeah. uh, in between. So let's see. But I think in the, in the near term, I don't think this will be the case. Sure. Um, and I want to kind of bring it back full circle because uh, – there is a need for better visibility, better transparency around operations, asset movement. Totally. But that goes back to your point on, on the data. Right now, like, we have data lakes. We don't necessarily know what's in them. Yeah. But we have an entire set of activities that have yet to even be yeah. digital. So there's a lot of intelligence we lack before we can try to do much more. Yeah. Is that, um, and I think one parallel I often draw is uh, to a company called Celonis, and they do process mining. Um, and basically, like basically show you the processes based on SAP data mostly. Yeah. And I think if you can do this for like factories or warehouses, I think this is super interesting. The problem is the data doesn't sit in like one SAP uh, system, but like in several different systems, right? Like manufacturing, manufacturing execution system, a WMS. Yeah. And all the other systems, PLC, what you have in the, yep. in the factory. So with that, a a big thing that's required, and and we see it a lot is. Uh, you have solutions that just need IoT, right? IoT, yeah. I, I kind of say, is a ways to a mean for a lot of software businesses. You have to actually capture the, the data input with some quality resolution before you could do something with it. 
How do you think about that? We run into founders who, at the seed stage, oftentimes under-raise or they underestimate the hardware costs, leaves them with not a lot of resources left yeah. to actually go build the business. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a huge problem, and I, I know a case uh, by myself where this happened, actually, you know, where there's a company that also had to raise a seed round. They raised way too little um, and now had only like 12 to 14 months of runway and usually go out like six months before probably to, to raise money. So they were not there yet where they could be, so not in a good position to actually raise money. And I think it's a it's unfortunate because, you know, if the company would have like raised some more money and have like six to ten more months of runway, mm -hmm. they would be in a way better position to now raise a proper Series A, right? Yeah. And, and that sense probably it's more like a bridge round than a series a yeah which is probably not good for the founders not good for the business maybe not great for the investors as well so right um nobody yeah, will right. be super happy but uh, it is what it is right you cannot change it right but is there something we could think through is there a framework or a structure where you might say that actually if you're in iot driven SaaS business you should be looking at your fundraise where you have, you know, cost of hardware for the next 18 months and on top of that an additional sum to actually go get the traction you need to go raise a Series A. So you might actually be raising significantly more than yep. a traditional SaaS business. Yeah, I think I think the trick is also, like, I think a lot of IoT businesses come from founders who probably have the experience in the industry but probably not so much experience in like fundraising and yeah. you know and like maybe how to build a tech business. And I think the problem with that is that they maybe actually underestimate how much runway they need and you know maybe <laughs> don't have so much experience with like enterprise sales and that it's like just very complex and that it takes long and you have to do integrations. And I think the problem with that is that in the end it's it's kind of like an awareness problem as well and they maybe not feel confident to raise like let's say 2.5 to 3 million instead of like only you know, instead of like 1.5. Yeah. So they just go out with 1.5 instead of 3 because they think, you know, that's that's good according to our business plan and we never raise money. So we don't feel comfortable just to say, hey, we have two customers want to raise a 3 million round uh, with like an MVP. Yeah. For example, right? Yeah. Um, we've, we've definitely run into founders who optimize for kind of 12-month fundraising cycles. Yeah. Kind of... Give us your, your opinion, your advice. How should they just generally think about raising? Because founders are optimistic by nature, but we've seen clearly that things can very quickly go off plan. I think from our experience, it's if you're in the enterprise SaaS business, you should have a runway of 18, but even better, like 24 months. Yeah. Because if you go out and raise money, you have to prepare six months in advance. So you, you probably can show traction only for, let's say, 16 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. Which is not so much, right? If you think like sales cycles are six to nine months, if maybe implementation takes one or two months, uh, and if you really have want to have like some customers that use the pr like the product in production and not only a pilot, you need this kind of uh, yeah. runway. Yeah, um, you you brought it up uh, a few moments ago, but integrations is where yeah. there's so much time uh, lost, right? And uh, we've identified very clearly that the time from when you sign something to when you bill could be several quarters yeah. um with that uh given you spend a lot of your time in europe you know could you help us kind of understand what the pre-seed versus seed 
environments like? Because that's kind of in, evolved here in the U.S. We finally acknowledge pre-seed is an actual mm. thing. <laughs> there are funds that are being raised against mm. it. W- what's kind of going on in, in the broader European landscape? Mm. How much are you raising? What do you need to show mm. to, to investors like ourselves? Yeah, maybe one point to add on this before. You know, if you think about this integration and you, you think of kind of like an, if you would have like an API layer for factories, that would be amazing. Basically, you know, yeah. like, like a Stripe for factories where you only connect once and then you offer all the integrations. The problem with this, I think in reality, it, it doesn't work because all the machines are so different and, you know, they may be 10, 20 years old and they maybe have like in-house systems. So, yep. unfortunately, even though I like the opportunity, I think it's really hard to build a scalable business there. Yeah, um, on that point, I... I definitely agree where uh, you have not only a lot of aged systems that are sitting on really aged infrastructure monoliths, and that's on the business side. When you come to the hardware, the hardware itself has different levels of software capabilities, and you have some, uh, a a founder refers to it as thick stacks versus thin stacks on on the hardware side. And absolutely, if, if there could be a more uniform set of integrations. I think you could see several big companies get built there. Yeah. And we're talking about a market that's trillions of dollars yeah. large. And it's right? a greenfield opportunity <laughs> as well, right? <laughs> right. So um so it's 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 one of those things I think we're slowly starting to come to the realization that a lot of the progress is being held back because yep. we just simply can't interface with one another. But the inherent thing about this world is as a manufacturer, if you cannot speak to me as your ocean carrier in a digital format, we're not going to see progress yeah. <laughs> and efficiency anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm going to come back uh, to my uh, question uh, that, that I had uh, posed earlier. What is the early stage landscape like? Pre-seed versus seed. Um, is it pretty similar to the U.S.? Or are there some differences? Yeah, I don't think it's so similar. So I think in Europe, we understand a seed round is mostly like a one to maybe two million round. Yeah. Maybe the company has raised, you know, a few hundred Ks from business angels before. Yeah. Maybe like got a grand or something like that. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons, and that's only like my experience, and maybe I'm totally wrong here, but I think in Europe, we have more like people raise a seed round and then maybe like a second seed or a bridge round. Yeah. Until they can raise this proper Series A of like six to 10 million. Yep. Um, and I don't know if it's very similar here in the US where I see more like companies that actually raise like from angels, you know, five, eight hundred K maybe even. And then the seed run is already two to maybe three million. That's right. So it, I think it's a bit more on the higher end here compared to Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with little traction. So I looked at a company recently which raises like 2.5 million with one pilot. Yeah. I think in Europe that would be really hard to be honest. Yeah. Um, I would probably tell you that that's increasingly more difficult to be pulling something like that off and yeah. and I think the the informal capital that exists really early in the European ecosystem I think that's ten that's getting formalized here and being called yeah. something and 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 I think that's simply the the difference but um yeah. I I appreciate that uh given we we look uh abroad as well uh as an investor but yeah. I want to get back to this topic around uh, building software products for industrials. And uh, you've uh, commented extensively on um, small, medium-sized businesses in Germany. And it's called the uh, Mittelstand. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Have I pronounced that right? Yeah, that's right. Close enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And um, I think what you've identified is that uh, they're generally... um, 
harder to sell into. It takes longer. They might not be ready. There's an education aspect to it. Um, and you also recently wrote about how you might consider fundraising. Yeah. Give it to us because I thought that was super interesting and, and more founders need to be, I think, aware of that. Yeah, I think what, what I'm a bit frustrated is that, and I think it's very early, and especially in Europe, you know, most as I said, like most of the companies are still in the seed phase and we don't know how like later stage investors will actually evaluate them. But my sense at the moment is, and that's why I'm a bit frustrated, that they basically compare these businesses with traditional SaaS companies yeah. and maybe expect, you know, the same growth rate mm-hmm. at the beginning, where I think this is a mistake because I think, in, in my eyes, these companies, they probably have a longer time to market, but when they hit product market fit, I think they can really accelerate. And I think people underestimate the stickiness of software in factories, right? Yes. So I was, to give you one example, like I was talking to one of the, uh, one of the factory managers and he had like an ERP system built like 30 years ago or so. Yeah. And it was crashing all the time. So they had to do manual stuff, you know, using pen and paper. And I was asking him, hey, what does, what does need to happen that you replace this ERP system? And then he looked at me and said like very seriously, yeah, probably a bomb has to drop on the factory, you know? And like that's something where which really stuck in my head because you really see how sticky the software is even though it doesn't like do a great job. Correct. So, and if, if then, you know, later stage investors expect, you know, you go from 10K to 100K MRR, for example, and then you can raise a Series A. I don't know if this can happen also within 12 months if you sell to those industries. That's right. And going back to the middle stand, um, I think... There, you know, founders often come to me and tell me, look, I'm, I'm selling to the Mittelstand companies, you know, SMEs, because I can directly um, talk to the decision maker, the sales cycles are shorter, but they still can pay a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. In theory, that totally makes sense. Yeah. In practice, I haven't seen it. Yeah. And I think the, one of the key points for that is that the whole economy is such in a well shape that the pressure to, um, to innovate for those companies is not strong enough at the moment. I think this will change, but for example, when I talk to those people, they tell me, look, my order books are full for the next 18 months. Why do I have to care now about my, f- my, about my efficiencies within my factory? That's right. right. I have to get like, all the raw materials. That's my biggest issue. Like, not if I save 2% of, more co- uh, of my costs there in the factory. That's right. And I think this will shift um, in the next like, two, three, four years. And I, I wish that this will happen, you know, that you can sell easier to the middle shots companies. And I th- I'm sure there's exceptions to that. Yeah. But in general, I haven't seen really how this works on scale. Yeah. No, I think that's that's very interesting. We um, we oftentimes talk to our founders about elephants, gazelles, and rabbits. And yeah. um, what you're, you're talking about, you know, uh, here in the U.S., you definitely have a, a subset of mid-sized businesses that are easier to sell to. Contract values are attractive. They can be that early reference customer, but yep. then on the flip side or in different sub industries, you face the exact same thing you just articulated um, in Germany. But I think w- what it comes down to is uh, we're going to see, I think, increased sophistication among Series A, B, C investors yep. where it's okay if it's actually a little slower yep. early on because at the end it's stickier and you'll start to see upsell contract values. Yeah, the really upselling potential there, that it can be amazing. I mean, look yeah. at Siemens, they have 200 factories. I don't mm-hmm. think you maybe get like to all factories, but still, you know, if you can expand from one to another and mm-hmm. so on, and you don't lose any money there because they just like stick to it. Yeah. I think in the end, they can be massive businesses, right? That's right. But I agree that, you know, the early years are maybe not as, attra- as attractive to investors as other companies. And yeah. the problem is, you know, they look at 100 companies and they select one maybe. Yeah. So... It's hard to pick that one. 
Um, and let's see, because that's what, that's what I'm thinking also, you know, for founders, it makes sense to maybe offer some consulting on the side at the beginning, yeah. just extend the runway, especially what we discussed earlier, if you have only a little runway for like 12 mm -hmm. or 14 months, right? That's right. Yeah. And I think the, the one interesting thing about professional services is not only does it give you a runway, uh, you can actually learn a lot. Yeah, it informs totally. your roadmap. Totally. You, you better understand uh, the decision makers involved. But uh, with that, uh, Robin, it was great catching up here. Likewise. Uh, can't wait to uh, get this up uh, and, and live. But have a great Saster. Cheers. Thank you. You too. Yep. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.